You are listening to Episode 7 of Quarter Share, a trader's tale from the golden age of the Solar Clipper, written and read by Nathan Lowell. Previously on Quarter Share. You had me trying to put it on backwards for the last two stands? Pip nodded. Yeah, sorry, he said, but it was just too good a chance to miss. It's a tough thing to succeed at, particularly in quarter share. A mass allotment is okay for personal gear, but it's really small to try to make a profit in trading, unless you know what you're doing. It's hard to diversify enough, and one bad deal can be a big setback. I lucked out when Ms. O'Rourke helped me, but I'm not sure I can count on or trust luck. I don't ever want to be stranded like that again. Chapter 11, Darbot Orbital, 2351, October 23rd. The morning drill was not just low-key. It was practically non-existent. The watchstander woke me as usual, but when I got to the mess deck, Cookie and I were the only ones there. Underway, there'd always be at least a couple of people lounging on the mess deck, hoping for first dibs in the morning pastries and fresh coffee. Not that day. I got the coffee going and started setting up the steam table, but Cookie stopped me. I would be most surprised if we got more than five or six people for breakfast this morning, young Ishmael, he said. We'll just have omelettes, I think. Would you like one? He was, of course, correct, and his omelette was perfect. Mr. Maxwell and the captain each came down, collected some food, and left. I could have sworn one of Mr. Maxwell's eyelids shuddered down and back up again ever so briefly as he passed me on the mess deck. A couple of the engineering watchstanders came in at the watch change, along with Brillo Smith. None of them seemed to be very talkative, although the engineering ratings were having a desultory, yes it is, no it's not, back and forth, about something that neither elucidated. Brillo smiled at me and brought her coffee to sit with me. Quiet, huh? she observed. I nodded. Not much happening this morning. Rating exam in ten days. Are you ready? I think so, but, I said, and shrugged. She chuckled, too true, too true. She leaned in then and asked quietly, Did I hear you're taking two tests? I nodded. Yeah, engineering and cargo. The cargo one is pretty easy, I think. Then what, she asked. You going to look for another berth? I shook my head. No, I'm happy here. I just don't know enough about this whole thing to try to transfer. I've only been aboard for six weeks or so. I'm still getting lost on my way to the head. What, then, she pressed. You're just going to sit on your ratings? Um, actually, I started, but was a bit reticent about continuing. Brillo gave me a kind of sidewoods nod, as if to say, Yeah, actually what? I'm going to study for steward and deck after that. Brillo slapped the table, making the engineering ratings jump, but not stop there. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Discussion. I knew it, she said. She grinned fiercely at me. You can do it. Deck is the hardest because there's so many things you have to know. I couldn't do it myself. I'm just not wired that way. But you're already immersed in the steward thing, so that shouldn't be too difficult, she said with a smile. Really? I asked. After weeks of studying the wide-ranging engineering materials, I had a hard time imagining someone who'd mastered them would think that deck was hard truth, she assured me. I've got a half-share rating in steward myself, but environmental is my love. I'd never want to do anything else. Well, then why the half-share in steward, I asked. I started as steward, Brillo smiled. I made the shift to environmental about five stands ago. I never regretted a minute of it. The steward rating was useful. It got me up and going, she confided, but I'd never go back. Cookie brought her omelette then, and I went into the galley to help him set the bread for later. 
We didn't cook that many meals when docked, but we did go through a lot of sandwiches, so Cookie baked extra sandwich loaves. You're getting to be very well thought of, young Ishmael, he commented softly, with a nod out to where Brillo sat with her omelet. I had no doubts myself, he told me with a smile. The rest of the day was extremely low-key. After we got the bread rising, Cookie had me do the normal galley cleanup, but so little needed doing that I was done by 0900, and he gave me the rest of the morning off. "'Just be back by eleven hundred, he said. "'We'll be doing soup and sandwiches for lunch, "'and I'll have you lay out the meats and cheeses.' "'So I returned to my studies "'and went over air scrubber protocols one more time "'and reviewed the regulations "'on disposing of used engine oil "'in an environmentally safe manner. "'Since we used it as reactor mass "'in a vacuum of deep space, "'I wasn't sure what that was all about, "'but it was on the test, so I studied it. "'More than once I marveled "'at how differently I saw the ship in port this time "'compared to Neris.' Where Neris had been a blur of confused activity, Darbot was practically somnolent. The same level of activity was happening around me, well, except for Pip, who hadn't returned overnight, but my own reaction to it was tempered by the experience of being underway. By comparison, this was practically a vacation. The lunch drill was as low-key as breakfast. A few of the crew stumbled in, still half-drunk, and gotten coffee to take down to the birthing areas while they got cleaned up for the shift change. I remembered Sandy said she'd be on duty today, too, but I hadn't seen her. With the nature of the meals and no serving lines set up, she could have come in, eaten, and left, and I might never have noticed. One thing that did seem different was Cookie had me shifting stores around. Young Ishmael, he said, I'm expecting some shipments of stores here, and we need to rotate the stock. He loaded a list of stores he wanted shifted from one place to another onto my tablet. He was consolidating stores and making room for the new ones coming in. When I was done, I had completely emptied three pantries and one whole freezer. I wondered what he was expecting, but didn't think more about it. After the lunch drill was secured, I cleaned up and swabbed down, and, of course, made coffee, before I went back to berthing to get ready for my first trip out on my own on a strange orbital. Pip would be back to help with supper, and I'd be free to explore. I was looking forward to a meal in a real restaurant where somebody waited on me for a change. I didn't really care what it was, so long as I didn't have to serve it or clean up after. I was brushing down my civilian boots when Cookie bit me on the tablet to return to the galley. When I got there, Sandy's words from the previous evening came back to me. Three Darbati officials were there with a rather battered-looking pip. His right eye was swollen practically shut, and his face had a bandage taped across his left cheekbone. His clothes were a mess, ripped and dirty. Mr. Wong, Cookie said, please help Mr. Costairs to his bunk if you would. So I helped Pip to his feet, and we headed for the birthing area. He was moving carefully, and there was apparently more wrong than met the eye. He didn't speak, and neither did I. We got out of there as quickly as we could, and I could hear Cookie thanking the Darbatis for bringing Pip back to the ship. We got to the birthing area, and I asked, Can you make it to your bunk? He shook his head. Ribs cracked, he said. I sat him down on Beverly's bunk while I made up the empty lower beneath his. I helped him out of his civvies and rolled him into the bunk. He didn't say a word. Can I get you anything? I asked. He shook his head. "'Very gently. Need sleep,' he mumbled softly, "'and I think he was actually asleep before he finished speaking. "'I went back to the mess deck, in time to see the Darbatis leaving. "'Cookie was back in the galley. "'I'm sorry, Ishmael,' he said, "'but I must cancel your liberty for the evening.' "'Yeah, Cookie, of course, no problem,' I told him. "'I didn't have any plans.' "'I waited for him to say something more, "'but he just drifted through the galley, straightening and organizing.' I went to the urn and got us both a cup of coffee and handed one to him. Thank you, he said. What did the Darbati say? I asked. He was found in a cul-de-sac. 
beaten and robbed. He had no wallet, no ID, only the clothes he wore ashore. He regained consciousness enough to give him the name of the ship. He has no serious injuries, a cracked rib, black eye, laceration over his cheek. He also has a knot on the back of his head, but no concussion. He'll be fine in a day or two, but for the moment he's in rough shape. I wondered if Cookie knew just how rough. Unless I was very badly mistaken, the physical injuries were nothing compared to the loss of the Grisham. He looked at me apologetically. You'll have to cover his duty rotations, I'm afraid. Well, I said with a grim, the show must go on. What's on the menu for dinner? We focused on settling up for dinner. Cookie made a pasta casserole that was baking in the oven. We pulled it out and set it up buffet-style with some of his crusty rolls. I set up a chafing dish with a green vegetable medley to go with the pasta. There was pie and ice cream for dessert, but I left the ice cream in the freezer. Everybody knew the portside drill, and by then word of Pip's injuries had infiltrated the ship. The air on the mess deck was even more subdued than might be expected. Cookie had baked bread earlier in the day, so I ran it through the slicer and bagged it before laying out a meat and cheese tray. The tray got a coating of cling film and then went into the cooler for the midwatch. The familiar routine helped a little. Cookie excused himself once and disappeared for about ten ticks. When he returned, he just said, He's sleeping. Beverly is there. And we went back to dealing with dinner, such as it was. I was pretty surprised at the level of concern for a quarter-share screw-up. Not that I thought of him that way, but with the reputation he had from the Duchamp, I expected most of the crew thought it. I finished cleaning up, and Cookie stayed to help. We were about done for the night when he broke what had been an almost perfect silence. He was lucky, but he was stupid, young Ishmael, he said. I just looked at him. He was on a trade run, was he not? I nodded. Yeah, he was. And was a fairly valuable cargo, he asked. I nodded again. A lot for quarter share, five hundred creds. Cookie nodded. Let this be a lesson to you too, young Ishmael. Never trade alone. I thought about what Sandy had said, and I nodded to Cookie. And don't let your friends trade alone either, I replied. He smiled sadly at that, but nodded in agreement. We shut off the galley overheads and went our separate ways. Back in the birthing area, Pip was still asleep, but Beverly was watching him from her bunk. She gave a helpless little shrug and mimed sleep. I nodded, but didn't speak. Whatever he'd been through in the last day obviously drained him. I couldn't help thinking that the loss of the Grisham hurt as much as, if not more than, any of his physical injuries. Back to square one. That was going to hurt. Chapter 12. Darbot Orbital. 2351, October 23rd. Ron Sham had the messenger watch next morning and woke me for duty. How is he? she whispered. Before I could answer, a hoarse whisper from the other bunk said, He's awake, needs to pee, and is hoping somebody will help him get out of this bunk. I clicked on the light and saw Pip looking up at me, his good eye open and a lopsided smile on his face. You're among the living then, I asked softly. He nodded and held up a hand to Ron, who helped him get untangled from the covers and clamber out of the lower bunk. I seem to be, but you'll excuse me if I don't stand around chatting. He hobbled painfully into the sand, leaving Ron and I chuckling quietly. She waved and left me to get on with the day while Beverly kicked the bottom of my bunk. If family reunion is over, can I get a little peace? I snorted and turned out the light. Thank you, she mumbled. It only took a couple of minutes to get myself cleaned up and into a fresh ship suit. Pip was in the showers and I left him there to report to the galley. I grinned at Cookie and he looked relieved. 
Mr. Costas is among the living, I presume, he commented with a twinkle in his eye. Yeah, he's hobbling about a bit, although he needed help getting up out of that lower bunk. He must be hurting. Cookie chuckled. Some mornings it feels like you have to step up to get out of the lower bunks, young Ishmael. Pip hobbled into the galley just then and said, This morning is such a morning, Cookie. The bandage was missing from his face, but his eye was still swollen. He moved tentatively with an arm held tightly to his side. He heaved himself gingerly up onto a stool and grumbled, What's a guy got to do to get a cup of coffee around this joint? And then he grinned. Welcome back, I told him. You want the old pot, or can you wait five minutes for the new? We all had a little laugh, the tension mostly broken, and I went to get the coffee urn charged up. By the time I got back, Cookie had poured him some fruit juice and was flipping an omelet out of the pan. I finished setting up for breakfast service and pulled biscuits out of the bread oven. Nobody spoke as the morning prep spooled out like a well-oiled cable, and just a few minutes Cookie, Pip, and I were left waiting for crew to show up and looking at each other. "'All right, Mr. Costas,' Cookie prompted with a smile. "'The time has come, and you will tell us what happened, or I will ask Mr. Wong to beat on your other eye.' Pip chuckled. "'Okay, okay, okay. I went to sell the Grishams. My contact at Shea Louie gave me a hundred and thirty bottle because they were in the presentation cases,' he began. I didn't think anything of it, but I guess carrying over five hundred creds in cash wasn't the smartest thing I ever did. I headed back almost immediately, figuring to get back and contact my next deal. He looked at me then and explained. I had a line on some entertainment cubes here in Darbat, rather a large number of them in plain brown wrappers. We're headed back to Gugara, and there's a good market for them there. I shrugged. Porn was porn. Everybody had a preferred flavor, even ancient lit professors. Mom had had quite an interesting collection of samples from various time periods. It still stung when I remembered her, but I could tell I was healing. Anyway, I tried to get to a depository and unload the creds, but these three thugs were waiting at the hatch between the civilian sector and the docks. They cut me out of the crowd and had me backed into an alcove so fast I never really saw it coming. I gave them my wallet and told them I had nothing else of value. They were pissed that there were only a few creds in my pocket. Where were the creds from the trade, I asked. In my money belt, he said. I'm stupid, but not totally ignorant. He took a sip of coffee then. Unfortunately, they'd tagged me as I'd left crew space. One of the thugs had a digital of me leaving with a duffel. They didn't believe me when I told them it was laundry. Next thing I know, I'm waking up, stretched out flat in a cul-de-sac, beat to a fine pulp, and my belt is gone. That was sometime around morning watch yesterday, as nearly as I can place it. Darbati Orbital Security found me and realized I wasn't drunk and that I'd been mugged. I was with it enough by then to tell them I was crew on the lowest, so they took me to the local medical outpost. Medics patched me up, filled me with painkillers, and had security bring me back here. Cookie seemed alarmed. Did you file a report with the authorities, he asked. Pip shook his head. No, they never asked for a statement, and by the time the meds were done with me, I was so drugged I probably couldn't have made one. Could you recognize them, Pip? Mr. Maxwell spoke from the doorway. I, he began. I, I don't know, sir, he said finally. Would you like to try? he asked, with no sense of irony at all. Pip thought for a moment and said, I'd be willing to give it a shot. Mr. Maxwell nodded. Have you learned anything from this experience, Mr. Carstairs? he asked, all formal again. I was stupid and I was lucky, Pip said, unconsciously echoing what Cookie had said the night before. I got cocky and I didn't take a wingman. I thought I could handle it and... He petered out a bit, but stiffened up and finished, and I didn't want to risk that people would make fun of me for trading. Anything else? Mr. Maxwell pressed. The Lois isn't the Duchamp, he said finally. Very good, Mr. Costers, he said.
and then he turned to include Cookie and I in his consideration. And since we're all here among friends, perhaps one or more of you gentlemen would tell me what in the deep dark is going on with the ship's stores? There was perfect stillness in the galley for about three heartbeats. Cookie spoke. We're trying out something to reduce the cost of ship's stores, sir. Mr. Maxwell nodded. That something would have to do with nearly a full container's worth of frozen food being delivered to the dock, and another container of canned vegetables? Cookie nodded. Yes, sir. Mr. Maxwell didn't speak for a moment. What if I tell you our next port of call is not Gugara, but back to Neris? Pip stiffened and looked at Cookie. Cookie didn't even flinch. Well, sir, I'd say that's good. Why's that, Cookie? he asked. Because the extra frozen food is cobia fillets. We got them to swap in Gugara for some beefalo. They'll be worth more in Neris. We can trade some of them for fresh produce, which, on our budget, we couldn't afford, he replied. Mr. Maxwell didn't say a word, but it looked to me like Pip was holding his breath. Cookie seemed calm and unperturbed. Finally, Mr. Maxwell said, That's an interesting notion. Do you have the extra mass allotment to carry stores for trading purposes, he asked, in a way that made it sound like he was really interested. Cookie nodded. Yes, sir, we do. The ship's configured for a larger crew than we carry. By being a bit more careful in storage, we can take on up to 15% more mass in stores, without sacrificing either ship performance or jeopardizing crew meals. He paused for a heartbeat. I believe we can reduce the cost of feeding the crew by close to 20%, which would add a nice bit to our profit margin overall. But what about the meals, Cookie? We eat well on this ship. It's a matter of pride. Sorry, that's my pride as well. If we go back to Neris, we can actually save money on stores while procuring foods we wouldn't normally consider because of the expense. I have some projections if you'd like to see them, he offered. Mr. Maxwell nodded. Yes, Cookie, I would like to see them, but only from a professional interest. That's your budget, and you know what it takes to keep the crew fed and happy. I trust your mass figures, and if you say it's going to save us money, then that's your call. Thank you, sir. I'll have them in your inbox by midday, Cookie replied. Mr. Maxwell nodded. If you could put together a description of the thugs and their general location, Mr. Costas, I'll circulate it to the crew and the Darbati authorities. We'll be pulling out in a couple of days, but if you're well enough for a short stroll later, we might be able to spot them. Pip smiled. Thank you, sir. I'd be happy to try to help nail them. You know the creds are probably gone, right? asked Mr. Maxwell. Oh, yes, sir, Pip nodded. But if we can keep them from hijacking anybody else, that's a win as far as I'm concerned. Thank you, Mr. Costas. Your efforts here are noted and appreciated. Mr. Maxwell smiled. Yes, smiled. Somewhat enigmatically, I thought, before turning and leaving the mess deck. I heard him grab a mug from the rack and fill it with coffee on the way out. Nobody moved or said a word for a long time after we were sure he was gone. Cookie broke the silence by saying, I've known that man for over fifteen stanyers. And it still makes me nervous when he smiles. Chapter 13. Darbot Orbital. 2351, October 23rd. The rest of our stay at Darbot Orbital was fairly quiet. Pip wrote up a description of the thugs, including the model number of the digital imager, and a rough sketch of a tattoo one of them had on his arm. Mr. Maxwell sent a copy to station security, and we broadcast it to our crew and the Union Hall representative on Darbot. Pip, Mr. Maxwell, and a couple of the cargo gang strolled through the station a couple of times before we got underway, but they didn't find anything. 
Not terribly surprising. Darbot's a busy station. All the thugs really needed was a list of all the ships making port in the day before they attacked Pip, then lay low until all those ships had left the orbital before striking again. Typical port time for a Union trader was seldom more than five days. It was a pretty slick operation, actually. I couldn't help but wonder how many were really involved. Just because Pip had only seen three didn't mean there weren't others covering the other hatches. We speculated on it endlessly, whiling away the port duty in the galley. For me, it really underscored Sandy's prophetic words on the track that night. Over the next couple of days, the new stores came aboard and were stowed in the spaces I'd emptied while Pip was busy getting mugged. I teased him, some people will do anything to get out of shifting stores, but it was all in good fun. We really didn't talk about the fact that he was back to zero on his private trading. The deal on entertainment cubes fell through, of course, because without the creds from the Grisham deal, he couldn't afford to get them. We were down in the pantry, stowing some of the canned goods when I offered to bankroll a deal. If you can get a line on a deal, I told Pip. I got paid. I still have money. It's not much, but... Thanks, Ish. I still have a bit of cash from the last run myself, but between us I doubt that we have the 550 creds to follow up on the cubes. I agreed. My pay, even with a quarter share, only came to a little over 250 creds. From one perspective, that didn't seem like a lot, but if I added in what it would have cost me for food, housing, clothing, transportation, and all the other small expenses of being planicide, I was actually making out pretty well. I knew our budget on Nerys hadn't had that much surplus, even with Mom being a relatively senior professor at university. Of course, there'd been two of us there, but even at that. I've been looking for some kind of deal here, he went on, and I haven't really found anything worth pursuing. The turnaround is just too short. Sometimes you luck out, but, he shrugged and only winced a little. The ready-knit had already begun repairing most of the damage, leaving only the residual muscle tissue trauma. You got a line on anything in Gugara, I asked. If we pool our resources, that'll give us a better financial position and more mass quota. He looked at me. After this, you'd be willing to team up? I nodded and shrugged. Why not? You've got the connections and the know-how, and I need to learn how to do this, and frankly, right now, I don't have a clue. I grinned. May as well learn from the master. He gave a wincing chuckle. Well, I don't know about being the master, but thanks. I'd be happy to show you what I know, and there was a cargo on Gugara. He began in a kind of speculative tone. He pulled out his tablet and pulled up a file. Yeah, I thought I remembered this. I gave it a pass originally. Price is right. Good profit potential, but too much mass. I didn't have the quota to cover it. I grinned. Well, I have about ten kilos, maybe eleven. Is that enough? He did some quick calculations and nodded slowly, looking at the tablet. Yeah, he said. It's plenty. The deal mass is 15 kilos. Cost would be about 200 creds. He consulted the ship's schedule. We're going to Marguerite after that, he grinned broadly. Excellent. We can sell almost anything there. Why's that, I asked, stacking the last case of canned banapod and strapping it down. Because, young Ishmael, he did a wicked impression of Cookie's voice, it's an isolated station. They support an asteroid mining operation, and there's little in-system production except for the refined metals and some large-scale fabrication. He went on, consulting his tablet again. Interesting. There's a Manchester yard there. That's significant, I asked. He shrugged. Dunno, he said. But the lowest is Manchester built. I wonder. He began punching up data on his tablet, but refused to comment further, absorbed in his research. I left him sitting on a stack of cream spanoose and went back to the galley. It was almost time for the lunch service. The pullout was routine. Getting underway felt good. I don't know if it was Pips getting beaten up or having the crew back aboard or the resumption of the normal routine that made it feel like I was somehow coming home as we set the watch and started the long crawl out of Darbot. 
This was normal compared to the less demanding and by now less familiar time in port. It was comforting in an odd way. That night I started my last passes through the instructional materials for the half-shared tests. The tests would be in eight days. Cargo was no problem, nor were the power or propulsion sections of the engineman exam, but I thought perhaps I'd try to spend some time with Brillo down in environmental before the test. Two days out of Darbot, right after lunch mess, Mr. Maxwell happened to stop by the galley as we were cleaning up. Ominously, he was smiling. "'Good afternoon, gentlemen,' he said without preamble. "'I've been going over those figures, Cookie. "'I wonder if you have a few moments to spare to discuss them.' Cookie shrugged. "'Of course, Mr. Maxwell, here?' Mr. Maxwell nodded and laid out a tablet from the work counter. "'Mr. Costas should be with us for this, "'and I suspect Mr. Huang will find it instructive as well.' Pip looked a bit guilty, I thought, although it could have been just a projection on my part. Mr. Maxwell was obviously enjoying himself, and I'd been aboard long enough to know that we were in for an interesting stand or so. "'I've noted some interesting factors on these tables,' Mr. Maxwell began. "'For example, this column labeled Demand Probability, and this one marked Probable Margin. They don't seem to be based on anything I know about. How did you derive them?' he asked. Cookie looked at the columns in question for a moment. "'Oh, those are estimates based on the port of call and the current galactic wholesale average price,' he said. "'These are for Gugara, and they'd change if we were to go back to Neris, for example. "'We run them based on specific pair of ports.' "'You run them where?' asked Mr. Maxwell. "'On Mr. Costair's portable,' replied Cookie. "'Mr. Maxwell nodded. "'I see. "'That would explain why I didn't find this data on the ship's computer, except in my inbox.' "'Cookie nodded. "'Yes, sir, no doubt true. "'The simulations are not running on the ship's computer.' "'Mr. Maxwell swiveled his gaze to Pip.' "'And where did you get this portable, Mr. Carstairs?' he asked. I broke in before Pip could answer. "'For me, sir, it was my mother's, and I brought it aboard with my quota. I was planning on using it to study, but I've been so busy I haven't been able to.' Mr. Maxwell nodded. "'We'll come back to the question of what you were planning to study later, but I surmised as much.' He turned back to Cookie. "'I think I know the answer to this next question as well, but humor me.' Where did you get these simulations that produce this kind of information? We built them, sir, Cookie replied. We? asked Mr. Maxwell, carefully not looking at Pip. Cookie and Pip nodded. Yes, sir, Mr. Carstairs and I created them and set them on the portable. We've been working on them for a few weeks now. Mr. Maxwell looked at Pip, then nodding as if in confirmation. This implies you have a pretty good handle on the market conditions on a lot of ports, he noted care to tell me how it works? He looked pointedly at Pip. Pip pulled out his own tablet. I have a database, sir. I started it some time back. It's been a kind of hobby of mine, and I keep it on a personal data cube. Mr. Maxwell nodded at this. When we get the updated market reports from the jump point beacons and station data, I have a little routine that updates my galactic standard prices files, and I research ports on our projected flight path, plus level one alternatives. Mr. Maxwell was not frowning so much as concentrating intently on what Pip was saying. Level one alternatives being, he prompted. Oh, said Pip, that's what I call alternate ports on our flight plan. From Darbar it was scheduled for Gugara, but there are two other wormholes. We could have gone back to Neris, or we could have gone to Albert. Since we came from Neris, doubling back on our course is unlikely. We only do that once and forever. We might, however, change course for Albert. We have last-minute course changes for about once every five jumps, so Albert becomes a level one alternative, and I tried to find out as much about Albert as about Gugara. 
Mr. Maxwell was nodding now. But since we came from Gugara before Neris, you didn't have that much to look up, he prompted. Pip nodded in reply. Yes, sir. Some minor market updates, but I'd gotten a good profile going into Gugara before. That cuts down on the amount of work required to leave Darbat with high-probability goods. And how did you determine that our route changes only about once every five jumps? Oh, that was easy, sir. The ship's log is a complete record of all courses filed with the actual course taken. I just tracked the flight plans we filed over the last five stanyards. Confederation regulations require us to project out four jumps, but we're allowed to amend those plans based on, well, whatever we want, really. Every time we change one, there's a flag set, sir, as you probably well know. I just counted the numbers of flight plans with flags and compared that to the total number of flight plans filed. The tablet tracks that for me. Mr. Maxwell looked thoughtful. So you research out four jumps along with possible alternate routes for every port we go to? Pip nodded. Yes, sir. Where are we going after Gugara? he quizzed. Margery, I answered without thinking. Mr. Maxwell swiveled his gaze to me. At two, Brute? he asked. I blushed. Uh, no, sir. Uh, we were just discussing it in the pantry this morning. Mr. Maxwell turned back to Pip. Your assessment of Marguerite, Mr. Costers. Pip got a faraway look and started reciting as if he were reading it off the inside of his own forehead. Marguerite Station supports asteroid mining and ore refining operations. Proximity to raw materials attracted the Manchester Yard Works. High-demand goods include quality foodstuffs, particularly frozen fish and canned vegetables, since none of the direct jumps to Marguerite lead to ports that export those goods. Luxury liquors and explicit entertainment are also in demand. Shipyard provides a ready market for electronics, astronics, and engineering control systems and components because, while the raw ship manufacturing components are readily available in system, the specialized clean rooms required to fab the guts of their ships are not. And what are we carrying to Marguerite, Mr. Carstairs? Mr. Maxwell asked. We, sir? You mean Lois, or as part of the ship's store scheme? Both. Manifest for the lowest lists four containers of machine parts for the new ship fab that Manchester is building, along with a container of paper goods and textiles. We're scheduled to pick up two containers of rare earths from Gugara bound for the smelters in Marguerite, Pip rattled off. Stores trades are not final yet, but I think we'll hold about a third of the cobia fillets and half the banapods for downstream trading. We're also planning on trading some of the cobia for extra coffee. Sarabanda Dark wholesale prices are way down in Gugara right now. We don't usually stock that in our stores because it's so expensive, but it would make an excellent trading stock and help break up the routine of only serving Jartmo Arabasti. Pip seemed to surface as if from a kind of trance and added, Sar, to his recitation. I see, said Mr. Maxwell. He swiveled his gaze to Cookie, who merely shrugged a what-can-I-say sort of shrug, and he swiveled back to Pip. And your assessment for private trading... I'm trying to find something we can buy in Gugara for the inbound run. I've had to start from scratch there because of my recent setbacks. Mr. Maxwell just nodded. The key to private trade in Marguerite is the uncut and semi-precious stones. Explain, Mr. Carstairs, he demanded. The asteroid miners frequently come across deposits of stones while prospecting and extracting the raw ore. The deposits are too small and too infrequent to make it worthwhile for any of the normal precious mineral cartels to set up there so the miners collect them and use them to trade for booze, porn, and other recreational goods. There's a lively market in Marguerite Station. The authorities turn a blind eye to it because it keeps the miners occupied and happy. For us, it's a good place because we can buy as much or as little as we can afford. If we manage to find something to sell there while we're in Gugara, good. 
That gives us more capital for buying up stones in Marguerite, he said, but even if we don't, we'll still have cash to buy a small number of stones, which will serve to restock our trade goods for when we go to St. Cloud Orbital after that. I see. It's too bad you haven't given this much thought, Mr. Maxwell commented rather dryly. This we you keep referring to is... Pip didn't respond immediately, so I raised my hand. That would be me, I said. Pip's going to help me get started. With our pooled resources for cash and mass, we have more options, and I get to learn the ropes. Mr. Maxwell nodded. Obviously, he'd worked out that much for himself as well. Turning to Cookie, he asked, Are you in on this unbridled capitalism, Cookie? Cookie smiled. No, sir, I don't trade any more. My creds are invested with a broker in Stamar, and that's good enough for me. Cooking takes up too much time. Mr. Maxwell nodded thoughtfully. He stared silently at Pip for almost a full tick. Mr. Costairs, he said, would you consider playing a game with me? A game, sir, Mr. Maxwell nodded. Use your research database and propose for me one container's worth of mixed cargo. Assume an empty container is available in Gugara, what would you put in it to take to Marguerite? Pip slid into his calculating mode. Budget parameters, he asked. Mr. Maxwell considered for a moment. Give me minimum required investment and maximum potential profit. Pip nodded. So, cheapest full container and maximum probable return. Mr. Maxwell nodded. Aye, sir, let me see what I can do. I'll have a preliminary by mid-watch, but our best information will be at the jump point beacon. We can adjust at that point, if that would be acceptable, sir. Quite acceptable, Mr. Carstairs. Thank you. And one more thing, gentlemen, Mr. Maxwell said. Mr. Wong, please see to it that Mr. Carstairs passes the cargo handler exam in six days. Aye, sir, I answered. There didn't seem to be an option. Cookie had that funny look on his face, the one he gets when he's trying not to laugh. Pip just looked like he was strangling on something. Mr. Maxwell nodded one last time and left the galley. I turned to Cookie and asked, Is it me, or does he seem to be spending a lot of time here lately? Thanks for listening to Episode 7 of Quarter Share. A Trader's Tale from the Golden Age of the Solar Clipper. The music is from The Lucky Black Cat, a hornpipe in A minor, recorded by James Curran, available on the Internet Archive at www.archive.org. This has been a presentation from Durandus, offered under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives 2.5 license. For website and more information on the Golden Age, visit www.durandis.com slash golden. Golden.